Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles all the way to the right, uh, to the last book of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation. Over the next 12 weeks, uh, really all but one of them, uh, I will be filling in for Shane and preaching uh, a number of messages from the first uh, three chapters of that book, which works out nicely because when we get back to 1 Thessalonians, we will almost immediately pick up in chapter 4 where Paul is reminding the church about the future coming of Christ and the day of the Lord uh, and the implications of those things for uh, for their lives and for ours. Uh, cl- clearly, the, the people had come, uh, those who were at the, the, uh, at the church of Thessalonica, uh, the people had come to believe in and hope for uh, the reality of their Savior's return and were living in expectation of that coming, e- eagerly awaiting Christ, which is critical for any believer uh, and critical for any church because God wants us to think about the future. Uh, he wants us to think about the future, to live in light of the soon return of the Lord Jesus and to allow the imminence of that event to shape our lives and to affect our decisions. That is to say, when it comes to life, God wants the, the, wants the Christian to turn to the back of the book. Now, let me read for for this morning just the first three verses. So if you're there in Revelation chapter 1, we're just going to be covering this initial paragraph, these first three verses of Revelation 1. I'll be reading. This is from the New American Standard Bible. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place... And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." Again, God wants us to think about the future. As Martin Luther once stated, there are two days in my calendar, this day and that day. And we are called to live this day for that day. And when it comes to the Bible, the the back of the book is really a panoramic prophecy of future events. Notice again what the Apostle John says in verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. In other words, the book of Revelation takes the wrapper off of tomorrow and gives us a guided tour of the last days on planet earth. And the majority of the book is futuristic. It shows us the, the beginning of the end. And in chapter 1, verse 19, John scopes out the book for us and divides the apocalypse into three main sections, one past, one present, and one future. You'll notice there in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says to John through the angel, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. 
So we have the things which you have seen referring to the vision of the once crucified but now glorified Lord Jesus. That's chapter 1. Then you have the things which are referring to the, the royal letters from the risen Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then we have the things which will take place afterwards referring to the events of the end times, the end of human history. That includes the final political setup of the world, the coming of the Antichrist, the coming glory of Christ's earthly reign during the millennial kingdom, the great white throne, judgment, and the ultimate victory of Jesus over all human and demonic opposition, as the wicked as well as Satan are ultimately judged, and the saved enter the eternal state of glory with God. That's chapters 4 through chapter 22. Or you might say it this way, we have Christ in chapter 1, the church in chapters 2 and 3, and the consummation in chapters 4 to 22. Or maybe this, the church age, or the, in chapters 1 to 3, the tribulation period from chapters 4 to 19, the thousand-year kingdom in chapter 20, and the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. So th- this, is, this is not a book to be ignored. This is a book to be undertaken. We are to read it, we are to understand it, and to obey it. We are to live our lives with the end in view. Because the study of prophecy isn't, isn't just a, some form of, of daydreaming. It's, it's presented to us, uh, the study of end times is, and last things is, is a dynamic force in the life of a believer calling them to greater service, to greater sacrifice, and greater steadfastness. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, he says, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. He goes on, he says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, he writes, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So prophecy is not, it's not daydreaming. It's, it's, it's not a narcotic. In fact, it's presented really as a stimulant, a stimulant to live fully and faithfully for Jesus Christ. Now we're going to get to the letters to the churches in chapters 2 to 3, but we need to understand that there is, there is a background and there is a foreground to this correspondence between Christ uh, and his church. You have the vision of the risen Christ among the churches, which forms the background. In chapter 1, we find him among the lampstands, which is, which is a picture of the church. And then we have him ret- re- returning and reigning among the nations in chapters 4 to 22, which sort of forms the foreground. And both of these visions call the church to get its act together. The Christ who is now hidden and mystically among the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit will someday soon and suddenly be visible and physically among the nations with his church. So what is the implication? 
Well, if you study these letters in their context, chapters 2 and 3 are, are sandwiched in between the picture of Christ among the church and Christ among the nations. If they were to reign with Christ in a future day in the millennial kingdom, they must now, they must now and presently obey the words of the risen Savior. And his words to them again and again were for them to overcome the world and not be overcome by the world. In fact, John mentions this. Uh, this is uh, every, in, in every one of his seven letters, and we'll see that when we, when we get there. And, and it also echoes something that John had written earlier in one of his epistles. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, John says, for, who, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the message of the prologue. The church of Jesus Christ on earth was to remain a colony of heaven in the midst of a world destined for hell. Living by faith, living according to the lordship of Jesus, because time was running short. The things that would usher in the end would soon take place, according to verse 1. And the time was near, according to verse 3. So let's take this morning, just this opening paragraph, let's break this, I think, as a helpful way to think about these first opening verses. Let's just break this into three ideas. The person of the revelation, the proximity of the revelation, and the profitability of the revelation. First, the person of the revelation. The book of the revelation is about Jesus Christ. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to to his bondservant, John. This is how the book begins. Jesus is the central figure in the chronicle of the unfolding of end times. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And the phrase, this particular phrase could be taken really in two ways. It could be the revelation made by him. So this is the revelation made by Jesus Christ. Or it could be the revelation about him. And I think in, in, in some ways both of these are, are true. Christ is the revealer. He is the one who addresses the seven churches and who opens the scrolls of destiny in chapter 5 and verses 5 and 7 and discloses the contents of that in chapter 6 and chapter 8. So Christ is presented as the one who is revealing this. And yet Christ is also the book's main theme. So the book of the Revelation, you might say, is a book of Jesus, by Jesus, and about Jesus. Which means if we think about the Antichrist, before thinking about Christ, we've missed it. If we think first about the mark of the beast, and later about the wounds of Jesus, or if we think about the one world government and later about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, we've missed it. This book is about Jesus 
Christ, his rule, his reign, his atonement. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we'll get to this next time. He says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So Jesus is now and, and will be center stage in the end times. He will not share the spotlight with the false prophet or the devil or any king or prince. He is the overarching object and subject of this prophecy. Chapters 1 to 3, Jesus is seen as the exalted priest and king ministering to the church. In chapters 4 to 5, Jesus is seen as the once crucified, now glorified Lamb of God reigning on the throne and being worshipped by the church triumphant. In chapters 6 to 18, Jesus is seen as the judge over all of the earth as the sword of God's righteous wrath falls upon a rebellious world. Chapter 19, Jesus returns as the conquering king of kings and sets up his earthly kingdom, which is eventually swallowed up in the eternal state. So this, this book, is, 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 it's, it's not a curiosity shop. It is a cathedral for, for worshipers of Jesus where we are brought to see the Lord Jesus Christ in some ways as we've never seen him before, exalted with feet as burnished bronze and eyes as fire. This is not the meek and the lowly Jesus. This is the risen Lord walking among the lampstands, looking at us and and asking himself questions about us as Lord and as head of his church. Jesus is the cover story of this book. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this word revelation is the Greek term apocalypsis, from which we get our English word apocalypse. Uh, it's, a, it's used in many places in the New Testament. It's, it's, in fact, it's used 18 different times in the New Testament, 13 by the Apostle Paul. Here it is used by uh, the Apostle John. Uh, but it carries the idea of something or someone being uncovered. Uh, it, speaks of, it speaks of an unveiling or it speaks of a disclosure. And it speaks most often about that which was hidden but that has now become visible. It can even carry the idea of uh, the idea dynamically of something opening up or even breaking through. And so dy- dynamically, this book is about Jesus Christ breaking through into history and the consummation of all those things, tying up all the loose ends. Now, when we hear the, the word apocalypse, I don't know about you, but we tend, to, we tend to think only of dread or maybe dragons or zombies uh, or, or, or the sky falling and those kinds of things. But that's not how the early church would have understood the apocalypse. Uh, it would have been more positive, something being unveiled, as in this case, having the lid taken off our understanding of 
Jesus Christ. That is what this book is about. It's about truth given by the Father to His Son, the unveiling of what the Father wants known, given to His Son and communicated by His angel to His bondservant John, so that all of the bondservants of Jesus Christ would be shown the things which must shortly take place. It's like like no other book in the canon. Lifting the lid off, pulling the curtain back. And what is this disclosure? It's Christ's present splendor. He is risen. He is seated. And by the Spirit, He is to be found among the church. It is Christ and His future glory as Christ sits until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. And then He will return and establish His kingdom as the lofty and fearsome King. And men will cry out. We read about this in, in the later chapters, even as early as chapter 6, men cry out from the mountains and rocks to, to fall on them and to hide them from what John describes as the, 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 the presence and wrath of the Lamb. The presence and wrath of the Lamb of God who is now the Lion of Judah. The book of Revelation wants us to see the one whom before kings will bow and nations will fall, and demons will squirm. What a glorious vision. What a glorious victory. And in this we find one of the great purposes of the second coming, that Jesus Christ would be vindicated. It's unthinkable really to to consider that the last view that the world had of our Savior was of Him being crucified. Bloody, Beyond recognition, hanging naked on a Roman cross. That is the last view that the world at large had of Jesus Christ. But it cannot be the lasting view. There is going to be another view. The apocalypse. The unveiling. The disclosure of the wisdom of God which had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That was his first coming, but there is another act. There is a a second coming. His humiliation is over. He had prayed to his father in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And that glory has been restored. He is seated at the Father's right hand. He is adored by the angelic host. He is worshipped by the church. He is loved by His Father. And one day He is going to return. His glory has been restored and His glory will then be revealed for all of the world to see and all the saints to savor and relish. According to Matthew 24, verse 30, Jesus will come with power and great glory. And at that moment, every critical, every shallow, every belittling thought of him will vanish. Every blaspheming mouth will be closed. The creation will sigh in relief. 
Every judge, every lawyer that has stood against God's word will stand guilty. Every minister that has failed to preach the true gospel will fear. Every devil and demon will know his doom is near. And the victory of Jesus will no longer be debated. We need to appreciate how how this message would have resonated with the original recipients of the letters and the book itself. If Jesus wins, they win. Their future and their fortune are bound up with his future and his fortune. In one of the letters, they would, they would be told, this is in chapter 2, so we'll get to some of these things, but they would be told to prove themselves there in chapter 2, verse 10, faithful until death. You see, there were, there were martyrdoms taking place during this era of the church. A generation before, in A.D. 67, Nero had inflicted the church with ruthless treatment. Having some Christians sewed up in skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs until they expired, and others dressed in shirts made, by, made stiff with wax, fixed to axle trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. We have all this, 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 this uh, documented history of the atrocities of the emperor Nero. But then you fast forward about 30 years, around A.D. 95, A.D. 96, uh, which is when we believe the book of Revelation was written, and there's been a changing of the guard. Nero has gone, but Domitian has come, and emperor worship has continued to escalate. Domitian, the emperor, making it law that every citizen in Rome and in the Roman Empire must come once a year to a temple and put some pinch of incense on the altar and cry, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't do that, then there were those delegated in the local cities and communities to deal with you as they deemed necessary. Some claim that during his reign... The reign of Domitian, 40,000 Christians were slain. It's believed that Timothy, the bishop of the church at Ephesus, was beaten to death by an enraged mob during this time. And the apostle John, who had ministered in the church at Ephesus, had been banished to the island of Patmos. But it's, it's, not, it's not Caesar is Lord, it's Jesus is Lord, Right? Jesus is Lord. That is the cry of the church. But to shout that and to preach that and to believe that and to live that was to invite trouble. But that is what this message is about. The central figure of this prophecy is Jesus, and the end game of this prophecy is that he will reign and the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our God and Savior. And when you understand that backdrop, you'll understand the significance. If he wins, we win. And so they were encouraged. The early church was encouraged by these, this revelation, by this, these truths. To, they were encouraged to stand in the midst of all of that pressure, to stand victorious, because the gospel would succeed. The church would triumph. These were words of comfort and strength 
to a company of the redeemed who were living behind enemy lines and suffering for it. And if they needed to be faithful until death, that would be worth it because they would gain the crown of life. So the form of this, the form of this book is, is prophetic, but this, really the spirit of this book is, is pastoral. And as a companion in tribulation, John was writing to them, encouraging them to hold fast. The mission was a real threat. Satan, a constant foe, their lives on the line. But Christ invisible was Lord and King, and one day his reign and rule would become visible. Therefore, they were to remain steadfast, to keep meeting, to keep on mission, to keep serving, and to keep ministering. Because even though hidden and invisible, Christ is still among his people, looking down over his flock. And one day, an apocalypsis will come, an unveiling, and he will become visible, and his triumph will be manifest. What a message for the ancient church. What a message for the early church, struggling through these difficult times. And what a message, really, for the modern, the modern church, quite honestly, that seems to be in retreat. So the message of this book, it's, 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 it's a positive one. Christ is leading his church in triumph. God will have the last word. And so, away with the long faces, right? I mean, away with our sort of chicken little uh, way of thinking. Away with our down-in-the-mouth attitudes and with our fear to suffer for Christ. Because as that hymn says, we are marching to Zion. We are marching to Zion. So why all this panic and why all this pessimism in the church today? Why all this paralysis in the church today? In the end, the Lord wins. The Lord wins. And if he wins, we win. Second, let's consider the proximity. The proximity of the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is prophetic, as I said, in nature. It is the word of God through the living word Jesus Christ, according to verse 2. And by nature and character, it is a prophecy, according to verse 3. That is repeated again in chapter 2, verses 17 to 19. Like no other book in the Bible, Revelation turns us toward the future. It would have us look up as we live out our commitment to Jesus Christ. But the interesting thing is this, we're told by John from Christ that the bulk of this book focused on the future and the events detailed in it are soon to take place, right? We see that there in verse 1, it talks about the things which must soon take place. We notice it again in the last line of verse 3, it says for that last phrase, therefore the time is near. That is to say there is a prophetic proximity To this book. So, what does that mean? After all, we're more than 1900 years since the writing of this book. So, what was prophecy to them? And and has it now been fulfilled? And 
what was prophecy to them is that now history to us. And some would hold that view. But I still hold the idea that it is still future for us. But if it, if it was future to them, and if it is still future to us, then what does it mean to be soon and near? Well, as we consider the proximity of this prophecy, there, I think, are really two things that we need to keep in, in our minds. The first is the season, the season of Christ's return and future events. You'll notice there in, in verse 3, this word time. This word time isn't the word that has to do with the unfolding of, of time or the time, for instance, the time on a clock or, or a calendar. That's, that's the Greek term chronos. So you say, well, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. That's, that's chronos time. We refer to this where we get our term chronology, right? But that's not the word we find here. What we find here is the Greek word kairos. Uh, and kairos time are those turning points in history that affect the direction of chronos time. So it's really the idea more of a season, so you might say that the season is near. It speaks of, of turning points in world history. In other words, there's time that determines the outcome of our life. There are certain things that we do at certain moments that just affect our lives proportionately. There are certain moments that affect the rest of the moments. That's chaos time. And the chaos time is near... That is going to affect the rest of the Kronos time. In fact, every, every woman that's, that's ever given birth knows the difference between these two things. About nine months into or so into her pregnancy, in the Kronos time, there comes a Kairos moment. Right? There comes a moment when she nudges this, that sleeping guy beside her and says, It's time. Right, And you head down to the hospital, and, and by God's grace, a wonderful moment trans, transpires. It is a chaos moment. And John, John says this, there's, there's going to come a time in the future, a chaos moment, a time that will change all time. Therefore, the book of the Revelation introduces us to the end time. The last pages of world history, the last season, the last chapter. The book of the Revelation puts us at the end of the fourth quarter with no timeouts remaining. The next great era of God's redemptive history is near. Not a period of time in the middle of history, but a time at the end of history and the culmination of God's redemptive work in the world. A period of time when God historically in Christ at the second advent finishes what he began in Genesis. And so we're talking about a season, a chaos moment, a time that affects all time. So as believers, just, just think of the implications of this. As believers, we need, we need to remind ourselves that chronos time does not continue endlessly. And history is not, is not haphazard. According to the last book of the Bible, the sure word of prophecy from John to the churches 
History is going to climb and climax in a glorious Kairos season and moment when Jesus comes again. God will once again invade time in Christ, and in this time, He will set everything straight and turn things right side up. And all of prophecy will become history. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is is the remainder of God's purpose, which is yet to be realized in its time. And what began in Genesis, he will finish in Revelation. God is victorious, truth prevails, righteousness reigns. So this is not an abandoned world. The book tells us that we are going to see, see things like what we're seeing that may be very prophetically significant or they may simply be shadows or gleams of that which is yet to occur. We see the rising levels of sexual perversion. We see all of the turmoil and the hatred. We see the culture really of the days of Lot and Noah. But this, this is not an abandoned world. Things are on course. And the time is near. Which brings us back to this thought. In what sense can it be said to be near? After all, this is 2018. Right? And we're still looking. And I think we, I think we can get a handle on this if we take near to mean next in other words, write, John, write, write those things which you have seen, the risen Christ. Write those things which are the present time. And write those things which will take place after these things. After what? After the church age. In fact, when you get past Revelation chapter 4, you'll, you will notice the absence of the church on earth because the church is in heaven And after the church age, we have the rapture, the tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, the purging of Israel, and the return and reign of Jesus Christ. That's all next. And we've been living in, really, you say, we've been living in the last days for the last, the past 1900 years. And we may be living in the last of the last days. But we need to understand this. The first coming of Christ has taken place. Christ is building his church. We don't know how long it will take to build it, but once it is built, that will trigger this season, this time. And we have to keep in mind that that although Christ's coming is next, and therefore near, it may be delayed to a point where people begin to question its very validity. In fact, Peter picks up on this, right? Second Peter chapter 3, he says this, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Verse 3 says this, says that scoffers are going to come in the last days with mocking and their scoffing, following their own sinful lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? I thought you said it was going to be next and near. And it still is. It still is. Which brings us to the speed of Christ's return and future events. Verse 1 of Revelation 1 states that these things must soon take place. Uh, This might mean that the events themselves, when they happen, will happen quickly or in rapid succession. And that is the view of some. As a thief in the night, the Lord will come and act swiftly. So it's not so much the the coming is sudden. Uh, The coming may be delayed, but when it comes, the events surrounding it will happen suddenly and quickly. Uh, This is the, the Greek word takos, from which we get our word tachometer. As a thief, the Lord will come and act swiftly. So it's, it's just simply saying, it's referring to this a concept of, I mean, thieves, they, they, they're in and they're out, right? They, they don't hang around. So when they come, what they do, they do swiftly and quickly. And that's, that's one idea. But I think the more natural reading is simply that Jesus is coming quickly. He's coming soon. His return and the events surrounding it will take place soon. Because a thief not only acts swiftly, a thief arrives suddenly. And that is how this term is used. We see it in chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 11, and throughout chapter 22 used in that way. It's what we call imminence. If something is imminent, it meant it could happen soon, but not necessarily. So it, it's, it's, like this, it's like this overhanging reality. Right, that's, that's the idea here. The coming of the Lord Jesus is imminent. Which doesn't mean that it is going to happen the next second, but it could happen any second. And that is the kind of tension that you and I are to live in. Jesus is coming soon. You say, in the, in the, next, in the next minute? No. In any, in any minute. In any minute. Many days and many years may pass, but that truth remains. He could come at any moment. Maybe the next moment, but not necessarily the next moment. That is the speed of Christ's return. He could come at any moment, and we as believers must cling to that and believe that. And we must allow that reality to change our conduct. So just, I mean, it's very simple, folks. Jesus is coming. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is coming? And not only that, but do you live your life in light of that reality? Things are happening all around us, world events, weather events, 
Speaking of, apostasy and a falling away in the church when people accumulate, the Scriptures say, for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth, and yet the gospel continues to go forth. It's not as if these things haven't been there before because there's nothing new under the sun. But the velocity seems to be different. There seems to be a greater velocity. Are we in that final generation? I don't know. But I can tell you this, it's not difficult. It's not difficult for us to see the end. That is the proximity of this book. Which takes us finally to the profitability of the revelation. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. That is to say, there is a treat in store for those who take the time to master this book and be mastered by it. This is not a burdensome book, folks. This is a blessed book. This is a book to encourage young Christians to read. This is a book to encourage every Christian to read. This in verse 3 is, is, is actually one of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And although all Scripture is profitable, this particular book is unique. That is to say, in some way, God is setting this book apart because it holds a particular blessing. It is God's last word about the last days. And we need to read it, we need to study it, and we need to keep it. That being said, the doctrine of last things is shrouded to some degree in mystery, particularly as to some of the specifics. For example, timing or exact details or locations or named individuals. But despite the limitations that God himself imposed upon this subject of his revelation, he did reveal a lot of things about the future. And he has made many things very clear. And he's given us many implications for our lives. So as his bondservants, we need to hear it with spiritual ears and submit and come under it. And when we do, it will give us a needed perspective of history so that we won't panic so much, right? I mean, as these things unfold in our lives every day and every week and every month and every year, we won't panic so much. We'll learn to trust in God's providence and sovereignty in these things and his power and grace. It will give us a needed perspective of our suffering because this book gives suffering value Because it reinforces the idea that there is a reward for being faithful. It feeds a steadfast hope because we always have something to look forward to. It stokes our evangelism by reminding us that there is a second death. And many of our family and friends and neighbors are going to experience it if they don't hear the gospel and trust in Christ. It triggers worship. You'll find songs all throughout the book of Revelation and a worshiping throng that calls us to worship our triune God who is both creator and redeemer. And it persuades against sin. 
Because all of these things, when you think about the return of Christ, you think about His glory, you think about His kingdom, all of these things immediately lead you to think about whether or not you are honoring Christ. Right now. Today. Whether or not you are being renewed into His likeness. Whether or not you have His agenda and His heartbeat whether or not you are walking in the Spirit, whether or not your flesh is being subdued by His power, we desperately need this revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, Romans 13, verse 11, Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. These things increase your diligence as a follower of Christ. Your sanctification is empowered. So read it, hear it, keep it. If you want to be blessed, you must set your mind to know of Christ's return. To know of his glory, to know of his holiness and the depths of his power, to know the extent of his judgment, to know the fate of the wicked, to know the the storing up of wrath, to know the justice of God, to know the wonder of Christ's victory over evil, to see the hardness of the human heart, to see the defiance of the human heart in the face of God's holiness and power, and to see through, through it all the saving grace of Christ and his power to redeem and secure his people. These words call us to blessing and obedience. And they call us to think about the future. Because this is the clear and present danger for the church. The peril of living life without an eye toward eternity or a heart for heaven. Because this world and Satan blinds us to the magnitude of these things, to the magnitude of the shortness of time. This world attempts to blind us to the magnitude of the length of eternity. Scripture tells us as Christians we are resident aliens on planet earth. And the temptation to lose sight of these realities is one that the early church fell prey to. In the seven letters, this is an issue that Christ addressed. In fact, if you look at his call to repentance and renewal, it is linked again and again to a restoration of an eternal perspective. And the implication of this is that they had taken their eye off of the ball, eternally speaking. In fact, the call to the church to return to him is linked to his return for them and the rewards that would come with it. So this was the motivation. This was the motivation to the church's health and holiness. 
the impending and trending second coming of Jesus Christ. And my, my prayer is that God would use this study in, in the weeks to come, use our study today to do that work in our hearts. That we would, as James says, both eagerly watch and patiently wait. That his appearing would motivate us to purify ourselves and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Please stand for prayer. Father, we we come this day and we thank you, Lord, for the call to consider that day. We thank you for this book that shows us where history is headed, that shows us what will determine the destiny of women and men, that calls us to awaken, as Paul says, awaken from our sleep and to be faithful to your church, that someday you will snatch away and, and, and take us to the judgment seat of Christ and prepare us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, if there is service to be done, we need to do it. If there is giving to be given, we need to give it. If there is time to be invested, we need to invest it. If there is truth to be proclaimed, we need to declare it. Lord, we want to be a city on a hill. Help us to build your work here, to be found faithful and ready for that season and that soon return of Jesus at the end of the age. And Lord, for those who are here with us this morning that may not know you, we pray, God, that they would bow their knee to you, that they would confess that Jesus is Lord that they would believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they might be forgiven and transformed. And for those of us who do know you, may we grow in our gratitude and love for Christ who loved us first and cleansed us from our sin. In his name we pray, amen.